Okay, I'm going to show you a drawing. Okay, if you've been on a Christianity Explored course, you will know this drawing. Some of you may know it anyway, but I wonder what you can see. What can you see? Anyone like to tell me? What do you see? A young woman. Okay, hands up if you can see a young woman. Okay, that's pretty good. Okay, hands up if you can see an old woman. Okay, hands up if you can see two women, both an old woman and a young woman. Okay, not bad, not bad. That's, that's, hands up if you can't see any women. Okay, right, should have gone to Specsavers. Okay, that's the... Um, but but it, here's, here's the... Uh, just, it's dawned on Rachel. Well done, Rachel. Look, here's the young woman. Look, here's her eyelash. Okay, there's the end of her nose. Here's her chin. Okay, and her hair here. Can you see an old woman? Uh, here are her eyes. There's her nose. Here's her mouth and her chin. You see, and I guess, the, I guess the point is, I'll just leave that up there for a second, and then I'm going to turn it off, okay, because otherwise you'll be looking at that for ages, <laughs> won't you? Um, the point is, isn't it, that, that, that not everything in life is quite what it seems, okay? You, you might think at first glance that you, you know what something is, but then you kind of view it from a different angle, you look at it differently, and you can see that it's something quite different. And I reckon that's what we've been seeing in the book of Revelation, isn't it? Something like that. As we've been going through these chapters together over the last few weeks, we've been seeing that the reality of what life is all about, okay, is, is something quite different from what we might often perceive it to be. Um, I mean, if we just look at, at the world at face value, we, we might conclude, for example, that, that evil and chaos are what rules our world, you know, we, we might conclude that God, if, if such a person even exists, must be pretty weak and powerless. And, and so all we can really do, therefore, as, as, as people is just to try and, you know, enjoy it as, as best we can, kind of, you know, muddle through. Uh, because it seems, if we look too deeply, that the bad guys always end up winning, the good guys always get trampled along the way. But actually, Revelation is telling us something different from that, isn't it? it as, as it draws back the curtain on reality... Actually, it shows us what's really going on in the world. And and what we've seen is that God, the God of the Bible, is absolutely in control. He's on the throne. And, And his plans, his plans which include both judgment and salvation, will be accomplished. And we've seen that it's through Jesus that those plans will be accomplished. The the battle on which everything hinges in the book of Revelation is not the battle of Armageddon in the future, but as we've seen, it's the battle of Calvary in the past. And Jesus has won the victory already. Which means that God's people, his church, are spiritually speaking safe and secure. Even though we can expect opposition and and suffering for Christ in the here and now as we we go about and pursue our gospel task of making him known. Friends, this is what's really going on in the world. This is the, the revelation of reality that John wants us to see in this book. And, and this kind of unveiling of reality continues here in chapters 12 and 13 as well, where we discover, in, in no uncertain terms, the enemy we face as God's people. And that enemy is Satan. The, the enemy is the devil. Now, I, I don't know what kind of, um, what kind of images uh, pop into your head when you think about the devil. 
Um, he's often caricatured, isn't he, in a kind of cartoonish way. Have you noticed that? Somebody who sort of sits on your shoulder and sort of tells you to do the things that you really know you shouldn't, like having a second piece of cake, you know, or something like that. In other words, he's fictionalized and he's trivialized. But actually, the Bible leaves us in no doubt that Satan is both real and he's powerful. C.S. Lewis makes the point, doesn't he, in the, in the preface, I think it is, to, to the Screwtape Letters, that when it comes to the existence of Satan and his forces of evil, we can make two equal and opposite errors. One danger is to make too much of him, so we can give him too much of the limelight. Uh, we can get over-concerned with his actions. We can be kind of looking for devils under every bush. But the other mistake is to treat him uh, like a make-believe character, you know, just someone to kind of scare the kids on Halloween or something like that. So, so either trivialize him or, or just ignore him altogether. But Jesus is very clear about the reality of Satan, and so is John here in, in these chapters. He wants to give us a, a much clearer understanding of the enemy that we face. Because, as, as we'll see in these chapters, the devil is out to give God's people as much trouble as he can. He's destructive and deceitful, deceptive. And yet we must never forget that he's defeated. He's a defeated enemy. He's in his death throes and one day he'll be gone forever. So let's have a look at these chapters. Uh, they're quite complex ones, aren't they, as, as, you, as you saw. So as we do so, let's remember, though, as we've been reminding ourselves in this book so far, that the literary style here is to use symbolism rather than literalism in order to convey truth. Okay, so with that in mind, here's three things that I think John is teaching us about the enemy that we face. And the first one we'll see in chapter 12, verses 1 to, to 12, and that is that the enemy we face is defeated. Okay, the enemy we face is defeated. And, and if you look in chapter 12, you, you, you'll see that it, it describes Satan trying to attack Jesus during his, his earthly ministry and failing and as a result attacking the church instead. So, so firstly let, let's look at Satan's attack in verses uh, 1 to 6 and look at the characters that we're introduced to here because there's a woman, there's a baby and there's a dragon isn't there? So what do they mean? Have a look at verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So let, let's look at the characters there in, in reverse order. Who, who is the dragon? That's made clear for us in verse 9, isn't it? That it's Satan himself. We're, we're told that he's the deceiver of the whole world. In other words, the whole world it, he, it is led astray by him. 
And in verse 3, we're told that he has seven heads and and ten horns and seven diadems or or crowns on his head. Don't picture that literally. Um, This is symbolic language, remember. And horns in in, uh, Jewish uh, writing were symbols of power. Uh, Crowns were symbols of authority. So, So the picture here is of Satan who appears to have great power and great authority. Do you see? Uh, What about the child? Well, notice in verse 5 that this child is a male and he's going to rule all the nations with a rod or a scepter of iron. That's a picture that's lifted from Psalm 2 in the Old Testament uh, where an iron rod or an iron scepter is again a symbol of power and authority. And in fact, that phrase has already been used by John back at the end of chapter 2 to refer to Jesus. So who is the child here? Well, the child is Jesus, of course. But what about the woman? Who is she? We might obviously think, well, it must be Mary. Okay, you know, she gave birth to Jesus after all, didn't she? But no, look at verse 6. Because Mary didn't flee into the wilderness to be nourished by God's provision for 1,260 days. So bearing in mind that this is symbolism, it seems that the woman here is actually symbolizing the whole period of God, uh, uh, the whole people of God. His church, in other words. The, the imagery is, is drawn from the Old Testament again, uh, where the prophet Isaiah uh, in 26 and 66 um, portrays God's people as a woman in childbirth. Uh, someone who is waiting to bring forth the Messiah, which is what's going on here, isn't it? So what is the event that John's referring to here? Well, it's a picture of Satan's desire to destroy Christ even at the point of his birth, which, of course, we know about. Don't we, how Herod tried to kill all the toddlers in Bethlehem? And and John's point here is that Satan was behind all of that, but his plan failed. Now, of course, the the birth of Jesus wasn't the only time that Satan tried to attack Christ. Uh, I mean, for a start, we can see it happening all through the Old Testament, can't we, where Satan's at work to try and prevent the birth of Christ. But by destroying all the, the off, trying to destroy all the offspring of Abraham that would, that would come from him. So on, on top of Satan's attack at Christ's birth, he also tries it during his earthly ministry, of course, doesn't he? And, and of course, ultimately at the cross. But of course, all those attempts failed too, such that by the time of his ascension into heaven, John can write, verse 5, that, that he was successfully caught up to God and his throne. Right, with Satan having utterly failed to harm him. So, so do you see the point? Satan's attacks on Christ were futile. Jesus is safe at the Father's side. And, and notice in verse 6 that not only was Christ kept safe, but the church is kept safe too. She, the church, symbolized by the woman there, is taken into the wilderness, verse 6, to a place prepared by God. So that's a place of protection and safety to be nourished for 1,260 days. And and you might know that the the wilderness in in Scripture is is often symbolizes a place of God's protection and provision. So so, uh, think about his protection and provision of Israel, for example, following the the Exodus. And, And John's point here is that after Jesus ascends to be with his father, verse 5, then his church are protected and provided for for 1,260 days, which if you remember symbolizes what? The whole period of the last days between Christ's two comings. Do you see the point? 
God's people are safe and secure, spiritually speaking. But then look at verses 7 to 12, because uh, the camera angle shifts now to show us Satan's defeat. Because in in these verses, um, John's talking about the same events, but now from a heavenly perspective instead of from an earthly one. So, So he's telling us that as Jesus was being protected from Satan's attack on earth, here's what was going on in heaven. Have a look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So so the same events that were being described as a kind of earthly battle in verses 1 to 6 are now being described as a battle in heaven. You know, a battle where the dragon, Satan, is, is defeated uh, by the, the kind of the senior angel, Michael, and his other angels. And, and Satan and his, his hosts are kind of thrown down from heaven to earth. Now, it, it could be tempting to read that at first glance um, as talking about the fall of Satan before time. You know, uh, Isaiah 14 talks about that. But Re- Revelation 12, of course, is describing events in the last days. Isn't it? In other words, the the days after Christ's first coming into the world. So I don't think it's talking about that at all. But rather it's referring to Christ's victory over Satan at the cross and the resurrection. In other words, the victory of of the cross and and the resurrection and, and the taking up of Christ's reign at his ascension, that is reflected in heaven by the defeat of Satan and his hosts by by God's angels. Do you you see? As the crucified and risen Jesus ascends to the heavenly places, so the defeated devil descends. And of course that chimes, doesn't it, with what we read elsewhere uh, in the New Testament. For example, in John 12, uh, uh, 31, 32, um, where Jesus links the events of the cross with the devil's defeat, doesn't he? Now is the judgment of this world, he, he writes. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? In other words, the the symbolic battle in these verses is a picture of the victory of Jesus over Satan. Okay, Satan can no longer have access to heaven, as as it were. Um, Job chapter 1, if you've you've, uh, looked through or read through the the book of Job, um, it, it suggests that before the coming of Christ... Satan was permitted access to the heavenly places. That's what's going on in in Job 1, isn't it? What did God, uh, what did Job, sorry, what did Satan do with that access that he had? Well, he used it to accuse God's people, didn't he? He stood before God, do you remember? In Job chapter 1, he stood before God and he accused Job of only being faithful to God because God blessed him. In other words, before the the, the cross, when sin had not been paid for, there was a sense in which Satan could still accuse God's people of sin and guilt because those sins hadn't been paid for yet. But at the cross, sin and guilt was paid for. Jesus died on the cross to deal fully and finally with the punishment that sin deserves by paying for it himself. And then he rose victorious over it which means that Satan is a defeated 
enemy. He cannot accuse God's people anymore because we have been declared righteous through Christ's death and and resurrection. And the verdict has been given in the courtroom of heaven. Look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And and how has that happened? Well, it's because, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Friends, do you see why Satan was so keen to try and destroy Jesus at the moment of his birth? It's because he knew that Jesus' birth would mark the beginning of the end for him. That the game would be up. That his power would be broken. And friends, he was right. Satan holds no power over you and me if we are trusting in the blood of the Lamb. He cannot accuse us anymore. Because the sins that he accuses us of have been washed away. They've been paid for. The debt has been written off such that if Satan were still able to come before God and and, and accuse Christians of sin, God would be able to say to him, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I haven't got any record here of this Christian having any guilt or sin to pay for. And friends, that's that's an extremely powerful lesson for us to grasp as Christians, don't you think? Because so often we can be Racked by guilt for past sins. Don't you think? Um, One of Satan's, I think, most frequent weapons to use against us is slander. It's accusing us of guilt. And I don't suppose there's one of us here who has not felt deep shame for past sin. I know I, I have. And Satan knows it. And he's a pro when it comes to dangling a past sin in in, in front of us and saying, yeah, you remember this one? Yeah, remember what you did? Remember what you said? And and friends, the guilt that brings is is a very powerful way of paralyzing us in our our Christian lives and ministries, isn't it? And and undermining our confidence in, in God. But what John says here is that through the cross, Satan is defeated Through the cross, you and I are free from condemnation. We're free from the penalty of sin. Satan has been cast down from heaven. He can't accuse us anymore. We are free. I wonder, do you believe that? Do you believe that if you're trusting in Christ, then your sin has been paid for and the guilt is gone? If you do, friend, don't hang on to that which Christ has got rid of, right? Lay it where it belongs at the foot of the cross, right? And leave it there. Don't let Satan accuse you because he has nothing to accuse you for because Christ's victory has brought about Satan's defeat. So the enemy we face is defeated But that doesn't mean that he has no effect in the world. Okay, that brings us to the second point. This is kind of uh, verse 13 of chapter 12 through to uh, verse 10 of chapter 13, which is that the enemy we face is destructive. 
Because although we're told, look in, in verse 13, that the devil is thrown down to the earth, he can't access, any, uh, access heaven anymore and, and accuse God's people, yet as a result of that, he's angry. And, and verses 13 to 17 show us that whilst the church is secure, spiritually speaking, yet, yet she will suffer at the hands of an angry, defeated dragon. Have a look at, um, at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Do you see? The dragon pursues the woman, but she's carried off, as it were, on eagle's wings into the wilderness, the place of God's protection, to be taken care of for a period of time, times, and half a time, which you will remember is synonymous with the 42 months of chapter 11 or the 1,260 days of chapter 12. In other words, this is speaking of God's protection of his people, symbolized by the woman, for the whole period of the last days, the time between Christ's resurrection and his return. In other words, whatever happens, God's people are secure. But not content with allowing her escape, the dragon tries to overcome her. Do you notice that? With a massive torrent of water in verse 15. I think that's probably a reference to false teaching because it, it comes from Satan's mouth. Uh, and it, it, he is frequently described, isn't he, as a deceiver or as, a, as the father of lies. But notice that even that river of false teaching is swallowed up. Verse 16, the true church will not be deceived. Right? There's nothing the devil can do to, to spiritually harm the people of God. The, the, the gates of hell will not prevail uh, against Christ's church. But, and, and it's a large uh, but, notice what we read in verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of of Jesus. In other words, yes, the church might be secure, but that doesn't prevent Satan from kind of making war against God's people and, and persecuting them. Yes, they might be sealed with the seal of the Lamb, uh, as in chapter 7, or measured off as God's temple in, in chapter 11, but Satan can still attack God's people uh, on earth, which, which is precisely what happens throughout uh, history before Christ returns. What, why? Verse 12 because he is filled with fury, because he knows his time is short. Friends, the point is this. Before Jesus returns to destroy the devil for good, Satan will make the most of his short time left in order to vent his fury on God's people, on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Verse 17. So yes, he's defeated, but in his death throes, right, he can still be destructive. And he'll do anything within his limited power to have a go at God's people. Um, it, it's a bit, I was talking to somebody about this the other week. Um, it's, it's a bit like the difference between D-Day and VE Day, isn't it? 8th of May 1945, VE Day, uh, was the day that after five years of war, uh, Germany finally surrendered and the war in Europe was officially over. But actually, it was really over on D-Day, wasn't it? Shortly after, in June 1944, almost a year earlier. That's when the fatal blows were delivered 
and, and the Germans became effectively a spent force. You know, the war was effectively over then, wasn't it? Even though there were some pretty fierce skirmishes that took place and, until that final surrender. In other words, the enemy knew that he was defeated, but he wasn't going to go down without a fight. He vented his wrath because he knew his time was short. And friends, so it is with the devil. He's defeated, right? The cross has seen to that. But he'll use whatever short time is available to him to vent his fury on the people of God. So how will he do that? Well, chapter 13 tells us about two kind of allies that that Satan uses to inflict pain uh, on God's people. Verses 1 to 10 kind of continue the destruction theme um, uh, as we meet the first of those allies, which is the beast from the sea. Have a look at verse 1 uh, of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So, so the first beast comes from the sea, notice, which in, in Jewish thought was the place of, of kind of chaos and represented evil. Um, and, and notice that this beast is given the dragon's power in verse 2. So whatever we make of this beast, it's clear that it's in league with Satan. But, but what is the beast like? Well, I think he's characterized by three things. The first one we can see is invincibility. Okay, verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. So this seems to be like an invincible beast. You know, he's got a mortal, a life-ending wound, but it, it's been healed. In other words, he's, kind of, he's killed, but he's come back to life again. He, he seems invincible. Um, in, in chapter 17, we'll find that John uses the, uh, uh, sees the same beast again and describes it as the one who was and is not and is to come. And, and you might, you might recognize the language there. Um, it might ring some bells for you because, of course, Jesus himself has a fatal wound from which he came back to life. Uh, God is known as the one who was and is and is to come isn't he? So is there some kind of uh, uh, mimicking Christ going on here? Is, is, is this beast some kind of sort of parody figure, some cheap imitation of, of, of Christ himself? But not only is he characterized by invincibility, but notice that he's also characterized by popularity. Uh, read on in verse 3, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And in verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, this beast has millions of followers, millions of worshippers. In fact, everyone who is not a Christian, they're all duped by this beast to follow its master, Satan. So so while God has put his king Jesus on the throne, so the dragon, the devil, is setting up a kind of a rival beast, isn't he? A rival king who, who, who like some parody of Jesus, is attracting his own followers, his own worshippers. Which, which is what John is alluding to in verse 4, isn't it? And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? 
Who can fight against it? So so this beast is is characterized by invincibility and by popularity, but he's also characterized by hostility. Did you see that? Hostility to God's people, that is. Uh, Verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So, So this beast seeks to destroy the people of God. So, so who, who does this beast represent then? Well, John's language here is actually lifted from, from Daniel chapter 7 uh, in the Old Testament, where, where we find Daniel presents us with four beasts, actually, which represent uh, four kingdoms or four earthly imperial powers. And, and what John seems to be doing here is kind of combining those images from Daniel 7 together into like one beast, as it were, but a beast that comes again and again and again and doesn't stay dead. In other words, he's talking about an imperial power, you know, in the form of a state or a government or maybe a king, something like that, that is used by Satan to do his work of controlling people and attacking God's people. Now, now when we get to chapter 17, we'll see that John clearly links the identity of this beast with the Roman Empire. Right? An empire that was actually especially good at controlling people and persecuting the church. But I don't think we must imagine that John was only thinking of the Roman Empire as the beast. But rather, he says that this is a beast that sometimes is, and then it's not, and then it comes back to life again. It's a beast whose head is killed off, but then is healed again. In other words, this is a beast that recurs through history. This is a beast that keeps coming back. Do you see? And friends, that's true of imperial power, isn't it? You know, think of China under Mao Zedong, or think of Nazi Germany under Hitler, or think of Uganda under Idi Amin, or think of Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, or think of North Korea under the the Kim dynasty, and and so on. The point is that you see this beast wherever you see earthly imperial powers setting themselves up against God and his people. You see? In, In fact... To the extent that any kingdom does that and sets itself up against God and his people, it's displaying to some degree those beast-like characteristics, isn't it? Which which actually includes our own country, of course. Which means, friends, that while the New Testament says we should honour the king, we should obey the state as long as we're not denying the Lord in, in doing so, we should not be naive enough to think that governments and kings and prime ministers and so on uh, cannot be used or are not used by the evil one in order to control people and persecute God's people. And, and neither should we be surprised, therefore, when kingdom after kingdom, you know, imperial power after imperial power, uh, rises and falls, and yet Christians still suffer even here in our own country, which is not the kind of imperial power that's being described here. But even even in our own country, there are beastly elements at play, aren't there? You know, so we shouldn't be, for example, we shouldn't be in the least bit surprised at how our government is squeezing religious liberty at the moment. You know, making it much harder for Christians to publicly profess Christ. Or, Or we shouldn't be surprised that the state is aggressively trying to tell us what to think over issues like transgenderism at the moment. Friends, it just reminds us that the beast is still alive. You know, Satan's still active. And and he uses hostile governments to do his work. 
And, and while there might be a lull, you know, in the way that's going on in the West at the moment, I think we'd be naive if we thought that couldn't change. And indeed, we might feel that it's already changing to a, to a certain degree. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we kind of we write off government or our MPs or anything like that as being evil. No, no, we can we can expect to see much good done as well as God restrains evil. But friends, let's have a healthy realism of of how Satan uses his power to do his will. Right? That that's to think that is not scaremongering. That's just reflecting what the Bible teaches. The beast from the sea is very much alive and well and and doing the dragon's work. The enemy we face, yes, is a defeated enemy, but is also a destructive enemy. Which brings us, finally, maybe briefly, um, to, the, to the third thing that John is teaching us here about the, the enemy we face, which is that he's a deceptive enemy. This is kind of in verses 11 to 18 of chapter 13. And if you look at verse 11, look, you'll see that John speaks about a second beast here, and that this one comes not from the sea this time, but from the earth. And you might have noticed, you might have noticed this one appears somewhat nicer than the first. Right? In fact, he looks like a lamb. You see that? Looks like a lamb. That's interesting, isn't it? Is there another parody of Jesus going on? Another cheap imitation of God's true king? But, but although this one looks kind of innocent, harmless enough, like a lamb, notice he speaks the words of the dragon. Right? In other words, he might look like the lamb, but his words are from the dragon. And I think that's because this beast represents false religion. In, in fact, we'll see in chapter 16, uh, chapter 19 as well, that, that he, it's, it's referred to as the false prophet. And, and, and you can see that in verse 12 there, he, he gets people to worship the first beast, right? This imperialist state. And then in verse 14, he performs powerful signs which deceive many people. So this is, this is false religion. And when it's combined, when it's coupled with an imperialist state as it you know, gets people to worship the first beast, well, that can be an extremely powerful combination, can't it? Which is probably what John is getting at looking um, in verse 16. Have a look. Uh, also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless it has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So, so this demand for the, the beast, that, that whoever you are, whether you're small or great or, or rich or poor or slave or free, you, you should be marked on the hand or the forehead. It, it's probably an allusion to the practice that was around at the time of, of kind of branding or marking or, or, or tattooing, uh, as it were, um, uh, slaves, perhaps disobedient slaves was one group of people, or, or perhaps devotees of various gods and religions. So to kind of brand them as your property if they were slaves, or, or to mark them as your followers uh, if they were a religious cult. So John's picking up on that kind of practice, which was kind of going on in society around, um, uh, uh, to say that figuratively speaking, so don't look for marks on people figuratively speaking, this is what the beast does. In other words, he puts his mark of ownership on people. And I think the particular incarnation of this beast that, that John's got here, uh, got in mind here, is again Rome. You know, this powerful, controlling, imperialist state where the state religion included the worship of the emperor as a deity. And if he didn't comply with the state's worship requirements, 
Well, then you suffered. And you suffered economically, okay, because you couldn't trade freely. And you suffered physically as well as many Christians discovered by being imprisoned or killed. Do you see? That's what such beast-like states demand. They, they demand the ultimate loyalty of their subjects. They demand your worship. And of course, this beast, like the first, is not simply to be linked with the Roman state of, of John's time, but actually this same beast is, is alive and kicking today as well. Along with imperialist states, you often find false religion, don't you? Because as, as these verses allude to, the state sets itself up as a rival to God's king. A parody, a, a cheap imitation for sure, but one that leads many people astray. One that deceives as, as well as putting great pressure on God's people. You know, again, think of the Kim dynasty in North Korea, where to consider any authority to be higher than that of the dictator makes you an enemy of the state. And, and where posters of Kim Jong-un, you know, must be hung in every home and school, must be. And they're basically vehicles for his worship. Or, or think of China, where there's been a massive growth in the house church movement, of course, over, over decades, but, but where now there's incre- increasing closure of churches and jailing of pastors and even rewriting of scripture. There was a, a report in The Guardian last year, uh, I think it was, that the, that the Chinese government were working on a government plan to promote what it called Chinese Christianity, okay, which included retranslating and annotating the Bible in order to find commonalities with socialism and establish a correct understanding of the text. So I think the Guardian was quite right to call that kind of thing thought reform, wasn't it? But actually, friends, we should be alert to the more subtle ways in which even our own state can try and do that. And again, the aggressive promotion of transgenderism that we're seeing at the moment could equally be considered as attempts at thought reform, couldn't it? People are being deceived. And there's an implicit warning in in chapter 13 here, I think, that actually any state can have a tendency towards overreach. It can start to demand a level of loyalty and, and worship of their subjects that actually Christians would be forced to contest. So it's false religion, I think, that this second beast is representing here. And and through it, Satan deceives. And you know, one of the striking things about that image, the image of that beast there in verse 16, is that it deceives many people. Yes, small or great, rich or poor, slave or free. In fact, everyone who doesn't have the mark of the lamb has the mark of the beast. Right? In other words, you either follow the lamb or you are following the beast. And friends, that has implications, doesn't it? Because if you follow the lamb, it may very well mean that you will face somewhat something of the wrath of the beast. Right? In, in this life, there'll, there'll be persecution and opposition will come your way. But if you follow the beast, you'll face the wrath of the lamb in the world to come. And we'll see that next week in in chapter 14. So Revelation kind of presents us with a choice, doesn't it? And the choice is kind of whose wrath do you want to face? <laughs> do you want to face the beast's wrath now or do you want to face the lamb's wrath on the day of judgment? And, and friends, we'll see in chapter 14 that the wrath of the lamb is actually far more horrific than anything the beast can do to us. 
And, and notice too um, that in verse 16, look, that the, the followers of the beast have the, this mark. Okay, it's not a literal one, it's a symbolic mark of ownership, which has a number attached to it, which is 666. And of course, loads of time has been largely wasted uh, on trying to work out what that, what that means. That, you know, the, there's a, there's a th- the, the Greek alphabet has a sort of numeric value attached to it, so kind of A is 1 and B is 2 and so on. And so people have assumed that the numbers uh, equate to a name of someone, but, but who? In fact, one study I read about in the week says that in Britain between... The years 1560 and 1830, over 100 different names were put forward. Um, but, but remember, numbers in Revelation are almost always used symbolically. Okay, and it's the same here. And, and if the number seven is used as the number of divine completeness or perfection, which we've seen, haven't we, in the earlier chapters, then the thing about six, okay, if I can state the blindingly obvious, the thing about six is that it's not seven. Okay? It's not seven. It's never seven. Okay? In other words, it always falls short. That's the point. It always misses the mark. Six always fails in relation to seven. Do you see? Six is not God's number of divine perfection, but man's number, verse 18, of always falling short of God's perfection, of failing. And, and this number of the beast is not just six, but it's six, six, six. In other words, it's failure tripled. Right? The number of the beast is failure upon failure upon failure. And of course it is. Because this second beast would have you worship the first beast of merely human idols and states. And so it must fail. It will fail. Now, all of that begs the question, how are we to respond? Okay, and friends, for a start, of course, we need to make sure we're on the side of the lamb, don't we? Because while the dragon and his his allies are trying their best to destroy and deceive God's people, remember that they are defeated enemies. And one day their destruction will come. And, And that will mean not just their destruction, but with them, everyone who's followed them. Those who have the beast's mark rather than the the lamb's mark. Which means, friends, that we need to bow the knee to the lamb while we still have time. And, And in the meantime, what are we, what are the lamb's people to be doing? Well, verse 10, sorry, verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, well, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. See the point? Friends, even if imprisonment and death for Christ comes our way, we need to stand our ground. Yes, times are hard, may well get harder for us, but let's never forget that we're on the winning side. Because Jesus has the victory. The devil's defeated. He's doomed. He's thrashing around, trying to make the most of his final fleeting moments of life. And one day, he will be crushed. Jesus will crush the rebellion. So, friends, let's keep trusting, and let's keep proclaiming, and let's keep standing our ground and remembering what Jesus said, that he will build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together, shall we? 
Father, we, we want to rejoice in this passage, um, actually, that, that although your word speaks to us of, of some sober realities about the, the enemy we face, that, that he is both destructive and deceitful, so we must be alert, um, yet they cause us to rejoice too, that he is defeated and will one day be destroyed. He cannot stand in the way of you building your church and then returning in glory as the judge and king of all. So, Father, would you give us confidence in that coming day? Would you speed that coming day, we pray. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.